Welcome to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and our guest today is Dr. Heather Ross, Division Head of Cardiology at Sinai Health System and UHN's Peter Monk Cardiac Centre, and Director of the Ted Rogers Centre for Heart Research at the PMCC. Dr. Ross is pioneering research of artificial intelligence to improve the lives of patients suffering heart failure. She'll join us in a minute, but first, here's the backstory on Dr. Heather Ross. Caring and determined. That's Heather Ross from a young age. Growing up in Montreal, she would bring home sick animals to try and fix them. And one time, when her family dog was ill, her mom brought her into the vet's exam room to observe. When they left, Heather declared, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Her mom said, oh? And Heather shot back, yes, the doctor. And then there's another moment at age 26. Heather was at her grandmother's bedside as she lay dying of heart failure and held her hand as she passed away. For the UBC med school student, her mission from that moment on was crystal clear. Improve the outcomes and quality of life for patients with heart failure. Dr. Heather Ross, cardiologist at UHN's Peter Monk Cardiac Center, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Pleasure to be here. Heather, what are we talking about when we say heart failure? So heart, heart failure is best described as the inability of the heart to pump adequately to meet the needs of the body. Uh, so traditionally, patients will feel fatigue, shortness of breath. They may have swelling in their ankles or around their belly. Things that we take for granted in day-to-day activities will cause uh, problems. So they just won't be able to. They won't have the energy or they'll be quite symptomatic. Incredibly impactful disease on quality of life. Okay, so how do we treat patients then with heart failure? What have been the options for you as a clinician up to now? So heart failure is an epidemic in Canada. There are more than a million Canadians with heart failure. And by the time you're 40, you have a one in five lifetime risk. So this is an impactful disease, both in terms of personal cost to patients and caregivers, but also in terms of uh, the financial cost of treating heart failure. So there are many different causes of heart failure. The commonest cause in Canada remains coronary artery disease. And the next commonest cause is idiopathic, which in my mind means we just haven't found the reason yet, which is what we hope some of this discovery science will do. Idiopathic as in random. As in we don't know. We just idiopathic. Um, But we can see heart failure from cardiotoxic drugs that are given in cancer treatments and treatments of other inflammatory conditions. Alcohol, some of the drugs like cocaine uh, can cause heart failure. We can see it from conditions related to genetic disorders or heritable cardiomyopathies, including cardiomyopathies like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where the heart muscle gets very thick. We can see it from valvular disease, which is very common in developing countries, from hypertension, which is an incredibly common problem. There are aspects of diabetes that can lead people to the development of heart failure, so it's a major risk factor. So the first question we ask is why? Because some of the treatments are somewhat tailored to the why. Then the next question is, well, what am I going to do about it? And what I'm going to do about it stems around drug therapy or pharmacologic therapy, device therapy, and then lifestyle modification. So I tend to say to patients, it's what I need to do, which is to make sure you're on the best medication and what you need to do as we engage in this partnership in your care. 
So from the patient's perspective, we want them to exercise 150 minutes a week. We want them to stop smoking. We want alcohol minimization. Uh, If they're obese, we look for weight loss plans. We engage in cardiac rehabilitation. We do still recommend salt restriction. That's one of the questions of our time that we have to answer whether that is a benefit. And we have a large study being led from Alberta, international study on that question. So that's sort of what the patient needs to do and keep track of their symptoms and get engaged in self-care. And then from our side, we have to make sure that they're on the best medication, these guideline-directed medications that have come out of large clinical trials. And then certain patients will benefit from specialized devices or pacemakers, defibrillators, or resynchronization pacemakers. And then the minority of patients who have advanced heart failure might benefit from a transplant or a mechanical heart. So I ask why, then what can I do? And then the third question is, what does it mean for me? And that is the question that develops into the whole area of prognosis which is what we're really hoping to make inroads in. So just curious as a patient, is it beneficial the earlier I notice issues to come and see someone like yourself? Seeking help is incredibly important. Seeking help is incredibly important. And we know we have data that the number of visits before the actual diagnosis is made goes up in men and women in Ontario as they get to the place where the diagnosis is made. So they are coming in. The diagnosis isn't being made because people don't have a heightened awareness. So they might diagnose them with a cold or with asthma because they don't have an awareness that heart failure can affect a 32-year-old woman, Hmm. right? So that's one of the things that we have to do is with this awareness concept is making sure that people understand how common heart failure is. It isn't just a disease of the elderly. It is an incredibly common problem. 5% of the Canadian population has a problem with their heart function, and they don't know it. And does early intervention in terms of recognizing these signs help turn it around? There is evidence that in certain situations, yes, early drug therapy can help remodel the heart back to normal. Which is as long as you're doing your part as a patient. Yeah, everybody has to. This is a true partnership. You want to give the right patient the right treatment at the right time. And this is a phrase that has been used often. And it's critical. And again, it's, you know, if you're talking about patient-centered care and I'm the patient, I would like you to be able to tell me what is my risk? What is my risk of having a side effect from that drug or having a bad outcome? How much is that drug or treatment going to benefit me? What does it mean to me? Right? That is really one of the driving forces. And I think paternalism in medicine has changed. And, and And as physicians, we recognize that the patient is at the absolute core of what we're doing. We are in a different era now. We have an enormous amount of data on information, data and information on patients that we never actually had before. So that's one huge change that's happened. The second huge change is we now have the capacity to store data in ways that we didn't. And we just think back about how much a thumb drive cost 15 years ago and think now to we're talking petabytes, which is so many zeros that, you know, it's hard to even think about how much space that is. And we have the capacity to store it. 
And then really the critical piece is we now have the compute power or the analytics engines to ask the questions. So we, we want to say that there has been an evolution and a transformation in how we're approaching looking at individuals with, with disease, not just heart failure, that's my area, but obviously this is also being done very well in areas like cancer. So you have nicely set up for me to bring us towards your research and the confluence of being able to take all that data and ask the questions because of artificial intelligence. But I want to ask you, artificial intelligence, when it first began to emerge, what was your first understanding of it? Well, I think I think anybody who's a movie fan um, thinks of artificial intelligence and they think of the Terminator, um, right? That's probably one of the single biggest I don't know if I thought of that, but... single biggest movies where we have this automatic intelligence that uh, is completely independent of any human uh, interaction supervision or interference. And that is one form of uh, AI, uh, including self-driving cars would be the current most uh, obvious example of that. You have to remember that artificial intelligence represents a number of different areas. And the area that we're really talking about is more augmented or assisted, which is how do we use machine learning, uh, which is a form of artificial intelligence, to look for connections and associations in a vast amount of data that just exceeds the human mind. So in medicine, for years we've been reductionist, and Descartes was one of the ones who started that, and we've always tried to simplify things to what is the one thing I need to know to tell the patient? What's the one test or the one number that will tell me how to manage the patient? And patients can't be distilled down to one thing. Patients are very complex. The human body is very complex. We had to do that because we just didn't have the capacity to do it any other way. And that's one of the changes that's happened. So now, instead of being reductionist, what we want to do is embrace complexity. And that is one of the big things that this type of machine learning allows us to do. It's the speed, I imagine, then. The speed is enormous. So we we go back to uh, one of the first early forms of machine learning that we did was a mathematical rules-based algorithm, an if-this-then-that flow algorithm to manage patients with heart failure. We call it Medley. And it is a remote patient monitoring application that lives on the patient's phone, and the algorithm lives on the patient's phone. It's personalized to the patient, and the treatment aspect of it is based on how we manage patients in clinic. And it was a PhD, Dr. Emily Cito, now at University of Toronto. It was her PhD. And we have been working on that rules-based algorithm for years and refining it. The next step for us is actually to take those simple three physiologic measurements that we use and the symptoms, but add other aspects of the patient's information that we have at hand, laboratory data that we have at hand, imaging data, and create a Medley AI, or an artificial intelligence algorithm for Medley, and a a mathematical or early AI algorithm, which is what we use now. There's no way you can do if this, then that, when you're looking at more than 100 parameters. And that's what I mean by the complexity. So uh, in general, most of us can put a bunch of numbers in our head when we're seeing a patient, and we get to where we think their outcome is. But this is the ability to put thousands of numbers uh, into a system and, and try to actually refine that. 
I was just going to say, it, it just seems so overwhelming. Like, was, was there a moment for you that you kind of had this aha moment of how you could man, not manipulate it, but I guess utilize Use, yeah. artificial intelligence yeah. and its potential in your research? Yeah. So my, my favorite, and so Dr. Cedric Melio, uh, who is uh, our computational lead for our uh, uh, cardiovascular data management center, uh, my favorite slide of his is he shows uh, visa fraud accuracy. Sorry? Visa, the credit card, yeah. it's fraud accuracy. And, you know, the accuracy on visa fraud and the pace at which it is detecting your visa card's use and whether or not fraud is happening is at a 99.99 and whatever extra nines accuracy. And this issue about how we prognosticate or determine what a person's outcome is in heart failure has been based on tools that have an accuracy of 0.75 to about 0.8. So one of our first aha moments was when we created this data lake or this environment where all of the information flowed. And now we have more than a billion data points in that data lake. So that's the size, uh, the size of which it's grown to. But when we were creating it, we uh, found a whole lot of legacy information that had been used during exercise testing. And we do a formal type of exercise test called a cardiopulmonary study. And the patient is hooked up to a machine which looks at their oxygen and their carbon dioxide and makes a, a clear guidance on what their prognosis is. And the one number that we look, which is your maximum oxygen consumption, which is your body's exercise performance or your VO2 max, has been considered the one number that we would use to predict need for transplant. It's a pretty big decision, right? Right. So what we found on the legacy computer was the information that generated that, that one number, but we also found literally thousands of data points on patients because the data was being captured on every breath. So somebody might be on the exercise machine for 18 minutes, and that gets summated into one number, but in actual fact, on every breath, data points were being created but not used. So we used feed-forward neural net analysis, which is a machine learning approach, and in just adding the breath-by-breath -breath data, we were able to significantly improve the accuracy of that one exercise test over the single number, the VO2, in terms of predicting risk of death, need for transplant, or mechanical heart. And that's just on one test. So it starts to make you imagine that if I could take now that algorithm and add in the other clinical data that we have, biomarker data that we have, imaging, and we're not talking about the imaging reports, we're talking about the pixelated data from the images. Now, this is this is at a totally different level of data, as well as, you know, our goal in this next 12 to 18 months, more genomic data from the DNA fingerprint. We think that we can refine that predictive accuracy, and wouldn't it be nice to be a patient coming in and have me be better able to say, this is what I think your risk is, and therefore, it is now that we need to be thinking about these advanced treatments like transplant or mechanical heart. When did this treasure trove become? Uh, when 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 did you find? Just this? in the last twelve months. So this wow. has been a uh, this has been a, a fun. So we I know fun. Sorry what, what sorry audience. Reaction? I know I think it's fun, but that might be just because <laughs> of my my uh, just enormous interest in trying to answer these riddles. But um, so so we were trying to get information into the data lake, and when we started the data lake, it was a 
you know, we weren't certain it could be done. So we started with six completely disparate databases within the Peter Monk Cardiac Center. We now know that there are 58 uh, different databases that house uh, patient information, including obviously the electronic medical record. So we started as this pilot project with six completely disparate databases and then tried to see if we could create architecture or code to hook into the databases and actually flow it into one data system. And so uh, when we first did that, it was very akin to the matrix. And I can't, re- you know, I can't even tell you how exciting the day was when we're staring at the computer and we can see the data actually flowing in, which is, you know, it's remarkable, right? Uh, and then from there, we saw, my, my, my God, like, look at all of the data that's actually housed here, and none of which has been reported on, because none of it was used to generate the traditional report, right, which is a standardized, appropriate guideline report, which is your VO2. But the rest of the information was there, but not being used. And that's what we unlocked. Uh, And then we thought, well, we've unlocked all this data. We should see if it actually performs better. And that's when we did the study. We had a young, awesome uh, master's engineer, Jason Hearn, who's now medical school in Newfoundland, who who did that project with Cedric and I. So... I'm trying to wrap my head around all this, it, it, all this data that it sounds like you had just scratched the surface as a clinician, but now because of AI, you're allowed to mine it and harvest it or harness it. Yep. What are you finding? Yep. Well, I think we're just starting. Uh, we really are starting. And I think one of the challenges a little bit is actually um, our imagination, um, which maybe isn't the right term for a researcher to say, but it is actually true. So when you start to think about what we can find, you say to yourself, what are the, what are the burning questions? Um, and there are a number of them. Obviously, for us, one of the critical pieces has been always around predicting outcome. And, and that just comes from me witnessing heart failure. And uh, my dad died from heart failure uh, a week and a half ago. I'm so, so I, you know, the, the, it's, it is the drive to want to answer that question about risk and benefit, incredibly personal, but also very professional for all the years that I've been in the field. So that is my personal goal. But then the other questions start popping up. Why is it that one person who gets a heart attack goes down path A and another person with a heart attack in the same area for the same age on the surface looks exactly the same, gets the same treatment and goes down path B. Why is it? What is it that makes those two people go down a different path despite the fact that on the surface they look the same and the treatment was the same? This is the other piece that uh, AI will do for us, which is around discovery. So what I've been talking around about prognosis is using information that's available that we know about to predict prognosis. When we talk about discovery, it's unmasking what we don't know. So if we can have enough people that look the same and go down path A after a heart attack and people that look the same and go down path B after a heart attack, then we can start to understand at a genetic level, genomics, at a protein level, proteomics at a metabolic level in terms of what's happening to their metabolism, which is called metabolomics. And we can start to look at the differences in those and the complexity of not just one gene that might be dictating a path for a patient, but interplays between different genes and environment. 
then we're going to be able to discover what it is. That discovery may allow us to find new avenues for treatment or for management. So one of the biggest opportunities for AI will be in the space of discovery. Hmm. That's fascinating because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, you know, in healthcare, we always talk about translational research, mm-hmm. taking what you discover in the lab or in theory and convert it into something tangible for the patient. So are you able to paint us a picture of what AI and heart failure research could look like down so, the road? So I think the, the first thing that's going to happen in the, in the clinical environment are these prediction models with the improved accuracy. And the way that we want to translate those more broadly is to create decision tools. So take the learnings from the Peter Monk Cardiac Center and the Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research that's created an algorithm based on all the information that we have that dramatically improves predictive accuracy, bundle that, and say that if I'm in Thunder Bay, the information goes into the algorithm and it is in the palm of the physician's hand in real time in front of the patient about what the risk is for that patient. So that type of prediction process will help us personalize the treatment better for the patient. When we get to understanding the genetics and how it drives disease and drug development according to that, that's precision medicine. That's a little further away for us. Uh, That's been happening in cancer already where they are looking at a person's genetics and the chemotherapy that they determine is based on the genetics. That's precision medicine. Mm -hmm. And we've been behind in cardiovascular medicine, but we are making a clear uh, inroads into that area. And I think that that's that's coming. But the thing that's going to happen first, I think, is more around being able to personalize care, being able to be better at predictive uh, modeling, putting those tools in the clinician and, in fact, in the patient's hands so the patient understands what's actually happening, and using that technology more for monitoring and managing disease. I think that is, that is that's coming in, in, in months to years. Wow. Um, I think the precision medicine is a little further afield, but is, is still coming. And essentially then, with the ability to process vast amounts of data, what does that give you as a clinician when you're in the room with the patient? Well, it means that when I'm saying to the patient, uh, you have heart failure, and uh, in general now what I say to the patient is, you have heart failure. This is a terrible disease. The average life expectancy after diagnosis is 2.1 years. And I'm using that based on large data that may not be relevant to the individual patient or broken down to their gender, their disease, their age, and their treatment. And instead, what I'm going to be able to come to and say to the patient is, you have heart failure. We know with this drug, for your age, gender, and disease, this is your likely outcome, right? I'm going to be able to predict better, tell young moms the likelihood that they will see their kids graduate from high school, right? These are all things that have, we have to be able to do a better job of. And I think that's the piece that's going to come sooner What's the challenge then to this vision or this dream? Well, that one, of the, one of the biggest challenges always is the data that you have. So a machine learning algorithm works on the data that it's given. So if the data that actually is given is from a very homogeneous cohort of people, it will only be predictive for that cohort of people. And that is one of the reasons that I think we are uniquely situated in Toronto because we are the most multicultural city in the world. 
And as a result, we have every type of person uh, that's getting engaged and wants to be part of this. And an example of that is that when we started biobanking and consenting patients to biobank, which will be a critical piece of this discovery and this journey, uh, we have the consent rates are 98, 99%. And in short order, we have now banked more than 90,000 samples. So it is, it is, that gives me goosebumps. It's seeing that partnership with patients who are truly engaged and not even necessarily for themselves, but knowing that their information may make a difference for the future. And I, again, Toronto is just in this enormous win-win uh, place with the technology boom, the analytics boom, institutes like Vector, who bring massive artificial intelligence experience to the table, uh, and the multicultural nature of the city. I think, I think we just have opportunity. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, a podcast about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and we're speaking with Dr. Heather Ross, Division Head of Cardiology at Sinai Health System and UHN's Peter Monk Cardiac Centre. Director of the Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research at the PMCC and a pioneer in the research of using artificial intelligence to help improve the lives of patients suffering heart failure. Heather, we'd like to ask our guests about the fact that medical research takes time. And for someone I know is so driven to improve patient care, do you ever get frustrated with how slow that process is? Yeah, no, of course we do. There's a there's an age-old expression about research, which is that there's good days and bad years, and uh, I think that um, I think that that is one of the challenges. And you just you have to remember why you're getting up in the morning, and you're getting up in the morning to make a difference in people's lives. And if you can keep the focus there, uh, it is a remarkable driver. The pace of research is also changing because of data and analytics and machine learning and AI. So the, the actual pace of work is changing, and Moore's Law predicts that beautifully, which is this logarithmic rise in technology, and we are seeing the same rise in, in, in pace of research. So when I think back to when I started uh, more than 25 years ago, the pace of research uh, is changing, and, and that's really encouraging. So what's the road been like for you then to yeah. get to this point? <laughs> Uh, I would say uh, it, it's been it's been pretty awesome. Actually, I feel incredibly uh, fortunate, and I can't thank uh, the Monk family and the Rogers family enough. the The truth is, the uh, funds that they have provided have dramatically accelerated our ability to make inroads into these uh, into these places, and it wouldn't have been done without that uh, philanthropic vision. Peer-reviewed research is still an underfunded area, unfortunately, in Canada. And so th those gifts and, and all the other gifts that have come with them, I don't want to downplay uh, the other philanthropic uh, gifts that have come in because every dollar matters. Uh, but uh, I don't think we would be where we are without, uh, without their absolute visionary leadership. I also like to ask our guests about their approach to failure because... We're not taught how to deal with failure, and you see it in your research and even in your clinical practice. How do you approach that challenge? Well, you could quote Churchill, right? <laughs> Success is not, uh, failure is not futile. Well, the single most important thing about 
failure is obviously to learn from, and I don't think anybody would be surprised by that answer. But I, I have um, I personally use uh, exercise as a way to um, release the demons, if you will. And I find that uh, it's not a sort of a 45-minute treadmill exercise we're talking about, but a six-hour snowshoe um, in this glorious country that we have. And what happens for me is somewhere around an hour and a half into it, all of the trappings and the challenges disappear, and i it's like a form of meditation. And by the time it's finished, I find that my mind has somehow in the process of stepping and breathing and the environment and the peace has made its way through the tangled web and often I, I sort failures in that way. So uh, some of my very best ideas have come from being away from the pressure cooker um, and some sort of the, the white noise uh, and, and getting out into a space where there's no competing interests with the brain. Um, so that personally for me has worked very well. Part of your role is also mentorship, being a role model. What's your approach? Well, I think the mentor role is uh, is critical. I've had uh, tremendous mentors in my own life who have uh, absolutely made uh, the difference. For me, I wouldn't be here uh, if it weren't uh, for, for uh, mentors. And those have been within and outside of medicine um, as well. Uh, Mr. Ian Delaney has been a crucial mentor to me uh, over the last decade. So I think that one of the things that a mentor does is is listen, open doors, support, and enable. As someone said to me, we can open the door, you still have to go through. And you recognize that uh, some mentees will run through without looking back. Some may be, you know, tiptoe through. Some are reluctant to go through, and that is their choice. But I think the mentor's role is as much as able is you, you lead by example um, and, and open as many doors as possible uh, to, to see the potential. And what, what advice would you give young people out there? You know, that young kid from Montreal who's just observed the vet <laughs> helping their sick dog who, who's interested in medicine. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Right. Uh, it's, the, it's been the best. Mm, there's nothing... Nothing like it. I mean, the uh, the challenges on the way. Uh, uh, don't give up the hope. It was my third time applying into medical school before I got in, and uh, so I've always thought I did okay for somebody who didn't get in the first two times applying. So there is, if it is what you want, if it is your dream, uh, there's a way to make it happen. What did you think the first two times you were turned out? Uh, well, the first time I was turned down, it was it was devastating, right? Because that's the whole vision, everything you've been working towards, and uh, and you sort of think, well, maybe maybe I'm not uh, capable, maybe uh, you know, in that old expression, I'm not not worthy. But um, then you think back, and you 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 say to yourself, no, that is that is where I want to go. So what do I need to do there? And you put you know you put your head down, and and you you do what has to get done. I've heard your patients talk about you because I've had the privilege of doing some stories about you. Uh, they say, you know, you're passionate, you're direct, and one young woman said in a very affectionate way that you're a badass. <laughs> Tell us about your connection to patients. Well, the, the, the patient is the reason we're here. Um, it's, it really is just that simple. And I think, you know, it, it's always been interesting to me to watch, and I'm so thrilled to see the evolution of medicine from paternalism to patient-centered care, 
And I would go so far as to say that I believe the patients are completely the owners of their health care and give me the incredible opportunity to interact with them to try to enable a better outcome. So it is about them. It's not about me. There's lots of things that are about me, but that one is not <laughs> about me. And I think if you if you do that and remember that you're, you know, your fiduciary responsibilities to the individual in front of you and do everything you can uh, to provide them the best and most honest information and outline their plan, even when the news is not good, if they know that that you have done everything you can and that's just what it is and you're open and honest about it, my experience has been patients are remarkably able to tolerate information even when it is bad information. In your practice, uh, part of the your raison d'etre, I remember you saying, is to make things better. Mm-hmm. And you take every opportunity to further our understanding of heart failure and heart health uh, in certainly trekking to the ends to the earth to shout that message. Um, tell us about that venture of yours, yeah. so, which is very much a part of your life. Yeah, so we started uh, Test Your Limits uh, back in 2006, and the idea really was threefold. So when we started the program, mechanical hearts were not funded by the ministry and I was seeing uh, people die waiting for a transplant because we didn't have a solution and the mechanical hearts were available and Dr. Viv Rao started the surgical program, but we didn't have funding. And so the first goal was to try to raise money to pay for pumps to save lives. The second was to engage in research that is high risk and high reward, not be afraid to fail. So research projects that mightn't get funded by peer review process because the risk ratio was real or because the area of research didn't necessarily fall into a traditional biomedical bucket. And so it was to provide seed funding for research and We've done some very interesting projects around quality of life with that, with that funding. And then the third was, you know, exercise is critical. Exercise uh, is just a truly beneficial uh, activity. It improves sleep and well-being and, and cognition. It improves heart health and longevity. And we are increasingly a sedentary and obese country. And what I wanted to do was to make a point that Ordinary people can do extraordinary things if given the opportunity and the training. And so Test Your Limits was about putting myself in that space and putting one of my transplant recipients, Dale Shipham, in that space. And we've done uh, uh, eight trips. We've uh, been to the North and South Pole. And uh, last May, we cross-country skied across Greenland, which was... uh, Epic because we had uh, you know we had one hundred mile an hour storm in a tent on a glacier on the top of Greenland and you know you're in your tent for a very very long time you get to know your tent mates very well but but it was about doing that and trying to really anything is possible if you if you put your mind to it I get that but Heather <laughs> and I'm sure this I am not the first person. Couldn't you just come up with a public service announcement? I mean, do you have to trek all over the world to shout this message out? So, you know, some public service announcements work, but the truth is people people want a story. People want uh, emotion. They want to connect. And I think that 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 is 
that is the way to do it um, and to try to get people to really connect and go, that could be me. Um, and in fact, I've had lots of people say, I want to come on your next trip. What does it take? And I say, well, okay, so it takes about uh, 20 to 25 hours of training a week. And, <laughs> and then when you say, and, and I, you know, I dragged a tire through the entire Don Valley, so I'll go drag a tire for, you know, three or four hours because that's what it's like to pull a sled at the, at the pole. And they're like, okay, when are you going uh, to like Bermuda? When are you doing test your limits in Bermuda? And how do I sign up for that one? No, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, I've always been interested in testing myself. That's been part of my own personal life journey. And uh, I, am a, I am a highly competitive individual and the person I compete with is me. Um, and so for me, that's been part of the best uh, is the Test Your Limits program. Okay, so we can't raise this Test Your Limits gambit of yours without the Mount Vincent story. Yeah, knew you were going to bring that one up. So Vincent was the first mountain that we did. And, it was your um, first test your limits, essentially, Adventure, right? yeah. So yeah. I had been to Bolivia <laughs> with uh, one of my uh, colleagues from Montreal uh, to do Mount Sahama, but it was the first test your limits trip, and we went down to climb Vincent in the Antarctic, uh, which is the tallest peak in the Antarctic, and we had a huge issues with travel delays. So the trip had been very well laid out in terms of landing, and then climbing and acclimatization and rest days. But we were uh, stuck in Punta Arenas in Chile. Uh, and as a result, your back end of the trip is fixed and the front end got collapsed down. So when we finally got onto the continent of the Antarctic, we had a very limited window, six days to do the trip, no days for acclimatization. And uh, as a result, um, on summit day, I got uh, very sick, high altitude pulmonary edema, and uh, uh, came down, but unfortunately in the descending didn't improve and I got progressively sicker and it, uh, it was a climber emergency. Um, and uh, Dale, of course, helped me get down the mountain um, that night. So it was a very close... That's your pa- the patient you treated. Yeah, that's right. Dale Shippen. Yep, helped from- me. Yep. And what was really sort of the true irony is, uh, you know, I was sitting there in the tent in pulmonary edema. What do heart failure patients get? They get pulmonary edema. And so uh, for that uh, relatively brief moment, hours, I knew exactly what it felt like. And uh, you want to talk about learning something that helps change your compassion around how you approach patients. Well, that is is, as real as it gets. And I would never want to see anybody experience the feeling of drowning in your own bodily fluid, which is exactly what it felt like. And I only felt it for hours. We have patients who live that way. You That's didn't profound. Make the, you didn't make the summit, but nope. in some ways, oh, you're, it, you're lucky yep. to be here. Yeah, I'm very lucky to be here. I think that that is true. And I, you know, when you and I first spoke about it, I was much less composed and it's taken me 13 years to be able to tell the story and not uh, kind of lose it a bit because it was a near-death experience for me. Um, the the crazy bit about me is six months later, I did Mont Blanc without telling anybody because I wanted to know if I really had a problem with altitude or if I could keep doing Tester Limits. And the story is I can keep doing Tester Limits. But um, but no, it was, a, it was a terrifying experience. And, uh, and I, I, again, I, I just say... Uh, I now have some sense of what it must feel like, just some small sense, and that does change the approach. You're going to keep doing them? 
Of course we are. Yeah, of course we are. I had ah. a. Yeah, I know. I'm recovering from a bit of an ankle injury, but uh, the plan is to do Ecuador in June of next year, and uh, climb. Yep, and climb Chimborazo, uh, which, uh, to our knowledge, would be a world record for a transplant recipient. How much have you raised? Just under three million. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's been a good, good program. Good for you. Yeah. Big picture. What's next for Dr. Heather Ross? I think the most important thing is that we follow through on the promise that we have made with the incredible visionary transformational gifts from the Rogers and Monk family to truly change care for patients with cardiovascular disease and for me specifically heart failure. So that is an absolute uh, commitment to do. And one of the most important things that both Mr. Monk and Mr. Rogers brought to the table was a business-minded approach, something that we haven't had as much in medicine, which is around having clear metrics and deliverables and timelines and adhering to it. And if you're not making it, understanding why and how do you adjust, modify, and pursue. And I think um, we really are on pace uh, to do it. Um, and the team is, is as driven as I am, and we feed off each other, and, and it's, it's a remarkable thing to watch. So I think what's next is hopefully to get back here in a year and tell you about some incredible secrets that we've unlocked. We'd love to have you. So Dr. Heather Ross, Division Head of Cardiology at Sinai Health System and UHN's Peter Monk Cardiac Center, thanks for speaking with us and continued success in your research. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca. And please let us know what you think. Rate the podcast wherever you're listening from. We crave the feedback. That concludes this episode of Behind the Breakthrough, a podcast about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.